Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Do any of you know what is America's favorite restaurant chain? McDonald's. What, what do we have? What do we have? Chick-fil-A. The answer is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has consistently, uh, by surveys of customers, proven to be the most favorite restaurant chain in America. They beat out McDonald's, sorry for the McDonald's answer, Burger King, Taco Bell, KFC, all the fast food restaurants. They even beat out the pizza joints. Pizza Hut, Papa John's, Domino's, Little Caesars, Chick-fil-A wins hands down. It seems like people cannot resist. What is that? Put it up. That tasty chicken sandwich with waffle cut fries. Anybody had Chick-fil-A? Is it worth it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, the problem is... Since Chick-fil-A is the king of chicken, why are there people out there that don't want Chick-fil-A restaurants in their community? Well, I'll tell you a little story. For instance, um, in San Antonio, Texas, they were redoing their airport. Chick-fil-A went to go put in uh, a restaurant in their airport, and the city council refused to let Chick-fil-A come in. Ryder University, the students made a petition, completely signed, filled. So many of the kids wanted it. They were petitioning to have a Chick-fil-A that's on their campus. And the school administration refused to let them come in. Why would somebody not let the king of chicken into their community? And some of you have already talked about it. Uh, They say it's because of their anti LGBTQ bias. I'm like, well, what does that mean? How are they against the LGBTQ community? Do they not serve chicken sandwiches to someone from the LGBTQ community? Nope. If you want to buy one, they'll sell you one. Do they not hire people who are LGBTQ? Nope. They have LGBTQ employees. Well, what is it? It actually has to do with Dan Cathy, who's the owner of um, Chick-fil-A, who's a Christian, and his donations. He gives very aggressively to Christian organizations. And a lot of people don't like that. For instance, he gives to Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He gave $1.6 million to them. But in their charter, FCA says that they believe marriage is between a man and a woman and that sexuality should be reserved for the context of marriage. Now, as a result of that, uh, Chick-fil-A has been labeled as opposed to the LGBTQ agenda, and there's places like Ryder University, San Antonio, Texas, and a number of other communities where they are forbidden to open a store in their community because of that. 
Well, we expect if you're going to take a stand for Christ, that sometimes you're going to suffer for Christ. And we can understand how some people from Chick-fil-A, they take a stand and they give large amounts of money to Christian organizations, while Dan Cathy may have to take a financial hit on that. They can't open stores in certain communities. But it's not just Chick-fil-A that ends up suffering for standing up for Jesus and talking about Jesus. But isn't that something that you and I should expect to experience every day in our life, in our world? Whenever we stand for Jesus and we talk about Jesus, shouldn't we also expect to be receiving some heat for Jesus? For instance, if you're a high school student and you talk about Jesus to some of your friends, don't you think it's normal that maybe some of your friends are going to call you a Jesus freak? and think you're strange? If you go to work and you start to live the way Christ would want to live, or you actually talk about Jesus, don't you think it's normal that some people would start to uh, make fun of you or mock you or insult you? We do not live in a society that's neutral for Jesus. We live in a society that is opposed to Jesus. And as a result of that, the honest truth is that many of us end up keeping quiet about Jesus. But we'll talk about Jesus on Sunday. We'll talk about Jesus at home. We'll talk about Jesus privately, but at school, at work, in the open community, when we're around people who actually need to know Jesus, then we zip our lip and we don't say anything. And here's the problem when we don't speak about Christ when we're around people who need to hear him. Romans chapter 10 tells us, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone, that's you and me, tells them? How can we reach people with Jesus unless someone, that's you and me, tells people about Jesus? But whenever we tell people about Jesus who need to hear him, what we have to expect is some people will not want to hear. Some people are going to be vocally opposed to us. Some people are going to actually push back on us and try and make us very uncomfortable. And that brings us to the question that we're going to look at this morning in the message. How can I speak about Jesus in a world that is against him? That's what the passage we're going to be looking at this morning covers. If you were with us last week, you know we began our series in 2 Timothy. Paul is writing this book from what is known as the Mamertine Prison in Rome. You remember he was waiting execution by Nero. What was his crime? Did he storm the Capitol building? No, he, he didn't. <laughs> he simply talked about Jesus very vocally, very openly around people who needed to hear about Jesus. And as a result, ultimately the long and the short is he would lose his head. Paul knows he doesn't have long to live. And he has a, a man who's been traveling with him for about 15 years on and off. His name is Timothy. He's sort of the speak, the next, the leader in the next generation. Timothy is pastoring a large and troublesome church called the Church of Ephesus. And so Paul, before he dies, writes this letter to Timothy to encourage Timothy to be faithful to the end, 
to be able to stand strong in the face of opposition against him and against Jesus that he is guaranteed to face, just like Paul has been guaranteed to face that. In the first five verses of the book we looked at last week, at that point, what Paul was doing, he's sort of trying to motivate Timothy, just trying to encourage Timothy, build him up. You know, Timothy, I love you. Timothy, I, I pray for you. Timothy, I have joy for you. But then as we get into verses 6 through 18, which is what we're going to cover this morning, he moves from motivating Timothy to trying to give him the mindset he needs to have when it comes to handling opposition, when it comes to handling difficulty, when it comes to handling people who will push back against Timothy for his faith and for talking about Christ. And this is very appropriate for us because we live in what's known as a post-Christian society. Isn't that true? We live in a world that is going farther and farther away from Jesus. We live in a world that whenever we talk about Jesus, we can expect to get more kickback and insults and mocking because of Jesus. So we need to hear what Paul is going to say to Timothy. Because he's not just saying it to Timothy. He's saying it to us. So if you have your, your scriptures, take them out, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Stand out of reverence for God's word. We're going to cover just verses 6 through 10 this morning in our reading, even though the section goes all the way to verse 18. So I'll begin reading in chapter 1, verse 6. You can follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word. Paul writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. This morning, we're going to break apart that passage into four points. They're on your outline. You can follow along. They go like this. In a world opposed to Jesus, don't let that opposition, don't let that opposition uh, lead me to start ignoring my gifts. Secondly, in a world opposed to Jesus, don't let that opposition, uh, well, make sure I need to remember that God gave me a courageous spirit, not a cowardly one. In a world opposed to Jesus, I should expect suffering and accept it. And then in a world opposed to Jesus, remember the power of God that stands behind us. So let's go ahead and dive in. In a world opposed to Jesus, don't stop using my God-given gifts. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We talked about how Paul, or Timothy, excuse me, is pastoring the church of Ephesus. 
we know this is a very difficult church. And in some ways, it reminds me of maybe pastoring a church in Portland. And you say, well, why do I say that? Because in Portland, they love to riot. We all know that. But when we turn to Acts chapter 19, what do we find happened in the city of Ephesus when Paul was planning the church there? They rioted against Paul and against the church. In addition, we know that in the city of Ephesus, it was steeped in witchcraft. In fact, Ephesus was the world capital for publishing books on witchcraft. And, and Acts tells us that when people came to Christ at Ephesus, they actually had a book burning where they burned all their books on witchcraft. Many books of great value. So Timothy is pastoring a church of former rioters and former Satanists. Talk about a tough church to pastor. I mean, that's a messy one. But he's pastoring a church in a city that still has a bunch of rioters and current Satanists. So he's got a real tough crowd. And as a result, Timothy has begun to get a little bit more quiet for his faith. He's not out there reaching people with Jesus. He's going to sort of uh, just keep it more quiet and to himself and not use his gifts that much. But Paul says to Timothy, don't be quiet for Jesus. Realize before I left, I laid my hands on you. And later in 2 Timothy, we learned as also the elders who laid their hands on Timothy as well as they prayed for him and that God gifted Timothy. God was supernaturally gifting Timothy to accomplish the work God had given him to do. And Paul says, God has gifted you to pastor this church. Don't let the culture around you keep you quiet. Don't let the culture around you force you to neglect your gift or stop using your gifts or ignore your gift. No, actually go out of your way to develop your gift. Uh, you say, well, what was Timothy's gift? Paul doesn't tell us. Apparently it had something to do with pastoring the church. It had something to do with sharing the gospel in that city, but we don't know exactly what it was. But I think the reason that Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the gift was is because the principle applies not just to him, but it applies to us as well. God has given each one of us a spiritual gift. He's gifted us to accomplish the work that he has given us to do in the church. We also are in a, wor in a world that is opposed to Jesus. We're in a world that is going to try to dampen down the use of our gift and not to encourage us to use our gifts for God and to express our gifts for God. Because what happens so often is, well, I'm too busy to serve. I have too many other things to do. There are better things I can do with my time than to use my gifts and to serve Christ in his church. And Paul says to Timothy, Paul says to us, I've given you the gifts you need to accomplish the work you've been given to do. You may feel your gifts aren't that strong. You may feel your gifts aren't that important or that useful. They are. Just develop them and use them. Don't let the world pressure you into ignoring them and neglecting them. 
Now, here's a pastoral challenge for each one of us. While God has given each one of our, given each one of us gifts, are we trying to develop those gifts, or are we ignoring our gifts? Are we letting the world pressure us to being busy in other areas, or are we trying to uh, make sure we're using our gifts in the church? Satan, he wants us to be what I call spectators in the church. He wants us just coming on Sunday, but never involved with our lives. He doesn't want us serving others. Because Satan knows that if we are serving others in the church, using our gifts around others in the church, then we will actually make a difference. Then lives will be changed. People will be saved if we are using our gifts. But if we're just spectators... Just come and we sit. Then as soon as I say amen, we leave and nothing changes. Not much happens. So are you committed to being involved and using your gifts? Or are you content to be just a spectator and just watching what happens? If you have the gift of service, find someone to serve. If you have the gift of hospitality, find a way to, to bless others with, your, with that. If you have the gift of teasing, how can you get involved? My predecessor said it this way, and I really liked when he said it. Remember this? Some of you have been around a while or remember, will know what I'm going to say. That on this ship, there uh, are no passengers. There's only crew members. <laughs> Pastor Chris Hulk told me that one. That's true. In a church, there are no passengers. There's only crew members. We're all gifted to serve, to serve Jesus. And when we do, the church makes progress. So the first thing we learned is God has gifted us. Don't let the, church, the, the culture around us encourage us to neglect or ignore that gift, but instead develop it. Secondly, in a world opposed to Jesus, remember God gave me a courageous spirit, not a cowardly one. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul says to Timothy, in the culture around you, uh, they're encouraging you to be quiet for Jesus. That's not the spirit that God has given you. God didn't just uh, use his Holy Spirit to gift you to serve him, but he also gave you a temperament to serve him, a temperament to use that gift. We learned last week that Timothy was by nature a very timid person, a fearful person, a quiet person, a not-up-front guy. And Paul says to him, God didn't just give you a gift, but he gave you a temperament to use that gift. You're not to be a fearful person. That may be your normal nature, but God has given you a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline to use those gifts. And I can tell you that when I was in high school, this was my, one of my favorite verses. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline because I was by nature a very timid person, uh, a very shy person, a very quiet person. I didn't like crowds. I still don't like crowds. But then I found this desire to, to teach the Word and to preach. And before I'd get up to do any, any lesson as a youth pastor, what did I have to say to myself again and again? This very verse, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. If he gave you a gift, 
He gave you the temperament to use it. Now, what do these words mean? Let's talk about that. Power. I put it down in your outline. It means the ability to make a difference. It's the ability to make a result. Uh, it's not just a bunch of light and noise. It's actually making a difference. So God has gifted you to serve him, and he gave you a temperament that will use that gift to actually serve him. In fact, I like to put it this way. I looked at this verse. I put it in your outline. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in you and me. There is no power shortage in us. The Holy Spirit will enable us to use our gifts to make a difference. Or as it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work in us. God works in us far more abundantly than we ever could ask or even imagine when we are using our gifts being empowered by the Spirit. The next thing he, we, he says he gave us is love. And this is specifically the word to love unconditionally. It's the word agape. It means love of choice. God has given us the supernatural ability to love hard-to-love people. People who are accusatory towards you. People who are mocking towards you. People who are insulting towards you. The Holy Spirit has given us the ability to love them. And some of you guys know I take whatever we teach, and I put it together in an e-book, and I put it out on the internet, and so hopefully somebody downloads it. And It's always nice when you get those reviews. And sometimes people will put some nice reviews, in the, and I get those on my email. That's always encouraging if somebody likes or writes a nice review. But every once in a while, you get people who write a really nasty review. And it sort of hurts when you get those things. I remember one of the books I put together, and I put it out there, and they gave me a one-star review, and they said, this book is homophobic, chauvinistic, you should burn things, and all kinds of stuff. And then he gets to the end of the review, and the person says, I actually didn't read this book, but it's a Christian book, so you know, I just wanted to say it, to sort of slam it. And I was like, oh, you're ruining my star rating. But at the same point, I'm like, you know, that's okay. That guy needs Jesus. That's the whole purpose of those books, to introduce people to Christ. And I felt in my heart more of a compassion towards him, not an anger towards him. Where does that come from? That's the Holy Spirit working in our heart. In fact, look at Luke 6.27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Well, yeah, we know that's what we should do. Where do we get the ability to love our enemies and the ability to do good to those who hate us? It's the Holy Spirit in us, isn't it? The other thing he gives us is self-control. 
It's the ability to stay focused and not distracted by pleasure or by pain. Jesus is talking about uh, how do we live in a culture that is opposed to him. When there's a lot of pressure against us, it's real easy to keep quiet and not to talk about Jesus. And then I was reading, actually it was yesterday in my quiet time, I was in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And if you know that section of scripture, you know that's when the apostles are sharing about Jesus in Jerusalem. Right after the, the sort of the birth of the church. And uh, the leaders of Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders are not real happy for the apostles speaking about Jesus because it's making them look bad because they killed Jesus. And this is what it says. Saying, we have strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, well, we must obey God rather than man. Why were they not wavered? Why could they keep speaking about Jesus even though they knew they were going to end up suffering to speak about Jesus? That's an evidence of the Holy Spirit who gives us power to make a difference, love to love people who are hard to love and who hate us, and self-control, which is staying on a focus or a task and not distracted either by pleasure or by pain. The Holy Spirit enabled them to keep speaking for Jesus. So, we are not alone. God has given us gifts, gifts that we can, should be able to use to make a difference in this world. Don't let the culture discourage us from using them. Develop them. The Holy Spirit has also given us a temperament to use those gifts. We're not, when the Holy Spirit is in us, we're not fearful people. We have become people that are filled with power, make a difference, love to love hard to love people, and self-control or self-discipline to stay on the task that God has given us. The third thing we see is this. In a world opposed to Jesus, don't be afraid to suffer for Jesus. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Some of you know that when I was in sixth grade, I w was hit by a car. I was riding my bicycle home from school, and a car uh, actually went too close to the right-hand side of the road, ran over my bicycle, accelerated my head towards the concrete, smashed my head on the concrete sidewalk, and I instantly passed out. I was in the hospital. I was in a, com a coma. I completely bruised my brain. And you wonder, like, how bad was that? Well, they called in my parents to say goodbye because they didn't expect me to live. That was how bad it was. I did live. Uh, eventually came out of the coma a few days later. remember waking up in the hospital with all the tubes in you and all the machines beeping around you. No idea how I got there. Sort of freaked out. Uh, and then I ended up, uh, as I was rifling through the nightstand, there was this little green Bible. It had Gideons on it, by the way, Mark. I didn't know a thing about Gideons in sixth grade. I thought my mom put it there. She was that kind of mom. And I didn't know what else to do, so I started reading the Bible. But in all the fear and anxiety of that time, I read that Bible and I started reading it more and more. It was actually a New Testament, to be more exact. It, was, it wasn't the entire Bible. I started highlighting it. 
And in that time, God's word came alive in my life in a way it had never done before. And I took great ownership of my faith in those days. A few months later, when I eventually was able to get back into school after I had recovered sufficiently enough, I came back into school with that little green Gideon's New Testament in my back pocket on fire for Jesus. But while I was gone, the school had really begun to change. Sixth grade was the beginning of junior high, and uh, things were changing. Drugs became much more prevalent among my people that were my friends, sex, alcohol, drinking. And here I came back into all that on fire for Jesus. And you can imagine how well that went over. Not at all. I was picked on mercilessly. Really, to be honest, I was. It was terrible junior high years. And I kept saying, Jesus, why is everybody so nasty towards me? Why are they picking on me? I'm trying to tell them about you. And what I need to understand is that's just normal. <laughs> that when you tell people about Jesus, some people will be drawn to him. Other people will be opposed to him. And they will become angry towards you. They will become nasty towards you. They will become mean towards you. People just like split right down the middle when you start talking about Jesus. Rarely is there a middle reaction. You're drawn to him or you oppose him. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. People will be drawn to him when you speak about him. But other people will oppose him, and they'll oppose him violently, and they'll oppose you violently. Expect it. It's normal. In fact, if you're doing a really good job of talking about Jesus, expect that you will start suffering for Jesus. Remember I talked to you about how I was reading yesterday Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 in my quiet time. and Let me go back to a little bit more of what I was uh, reading. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Giving each other high fives. Hey, we did a pretty good job of making Jesus clear because they really hated us. That's the truth. If we do a good job of being vocal for Christ, expect some people are going to be very opposed to us because of Christ. Now the question that comes to mind is, why are there some Christians out there who never seem to face opposition for Jesus? They skate through this life and nobody's ever irritated with them. I don't have all the answers for that, but I do have probably some of the answers for that. If the only time we talk about Jesus is on Sunday, if the only time we talk about Jesus is privately around other people who know him, we're not going to face any opposition for him. But if we talk about Jesus publicly around people who actually need to hear him, around people who actually need to meet him, because we're trying to reach people with Jesus, 
we will expect that some people will be drawn to him. But other people will fiercely oppose him, and they will oppose us. It is just normal. That's the way it goes. And we have to have the right mindset, Paul says to Timothy, and Paul says to us. If you're vocal for Jesus in a public way, expect that people will do nasty things to you on social media. Expect people will put bad reviews about you because you're a Christian on your books. Just expect it. Accept it. In fact, actually, like the apostles, maybe you need to rejoice in it. I did a good enough job that somebody actually heard about Jesus. That's okay. So Paul says to Timothy, join me in suffering for Christ. Just as I've ended up suffering for Jesus because I've been vocal, you be vocal for Jesus and join me in suffering as well. Don't just speak around, about Jesus around people who already know him. I like where Paul says a little later in this book, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. That means if you're in high school, expect some people will laugh at you if you talk about Jesus. They will make fun of you if you talk about Jesus. But take your share in suffering. Paul said to Timothy, take your share. I took my share. You take your share. If you're in a sports team and you're bold for Jesus, some people, you may find yourself benched. Take your share in suffering. If you're at work and you talk about Jesus and tell people how much God loves them, how Jesus died for them, all good news. Expect someone's going to give you a, a bad mark or say something nasty to you or undermine you. But remember this. There is no way that you and I can reach people with Jesus if we don't ever talk about Jesus when we're around people who need to meet him. There's no way we'll reach people with Jesus if we don't ever talk about Jesus when we're around people who need to hear him. Now, how do we speak about Jesus? I'm going to throw this in from uh, 1 Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about him gently, and we talk to people respectfully. I really do not like these guys. You see, walking around street corners with sandwich boards that say, the end is coming, turn or burn. You seen those guys? That's not gentle or respectful. Or the guys who have the big uh, sandwich boards they hold up, with the cardboards they hold up, it says, God hates gays. That's not gentle. That's not respectful. That's not the way to witness for Jesus. Now, as we're going through the suffering, which inevitably will come when we talk about him, how do we handle that? There are a couple answers. One I'd like to point out for you is how Paul terms himself when he's in jail. He calls himself a Christ prisoner or God's prisoner. It's important to see how Paul thinks about this. In Paul's mind, was Nero the one that put him in prison? 
or was it ultimately Christ who put him in prison? It's ultimately God who put him in prison. Nero is not ultimately in charge of Paul's life, directing his future. God is ultimately in charge of Paul's life, directing his future. And Paul reasons, all I need to do is be faithful to speak about Jesus. I let the chips fall where they may. And if I end up suffering because I've been vocal about Christ, so be it. God's got a good plan. He's the one who will put me where he wants me to be. We covered this briefly last week. Remember, this is Paul's second imprisonment. In his first imprisonment, he was also in Rome under house arrest because he was vocal for Jesus. And he was chained to, the, to members of the Praetorian Guard, the elite special forces of Caesar, six hours a day. And he's like, oh, look, God gave me a captive audience. So I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Six hours a day, I get to do that for four, four of those Praetorian Guards. And a whole bunch of them come to Christ. And there is no other way they would be able to hear about Christ other than the fact that God ordered circumstances to put Paul in prison, to chain him to those guards who would never hear about Christ otherwise. See, when we suffer for Christ, and it looks like the world is falling apart, is it? Nope. God uses that adversity to just move us from one place to the other to get us where he wants us to go so we can share about God. So when we know that when we go through that suffering, that God's still in control, and he's using it to move us around, even if we are ending up in prison, how do we handle that? How do we emotionally handle it? And Paul tells us here, he says, we handle this suffering by the power of God. The same Holy Spirit that has gifted us to make a difference for his kingdom. The same Holy Spirit who has changed our temperaments. So we're not fearful, but we're people who have power, love, and self-discipline. That same Holy Spirit enables us to endure that time, those times of suffering that we face when we're vocal for Christ, and yet we're mocked and insulted for Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit does. In fact, uh, look how it says this in 1 Peter about suffering for Christ when we're vocal for him. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because what happens? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. If we're suffering because we've done bad things, well, that's one thing. But if we're suffering because we've been vocal for Jesus, that's a different thing. God's Spirit rests upon us in a very special way in those times. Number four, and we'll go through these rather quickly. In a world opposed to Jesus, remember the power of God. And this is what he focuses on in the last two verses in this section. The God who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The theme in all these verses is the incredible, awesome power of God. When we are suffering for Christ, we're being mocked or insulted because we've been vocal for Christ, remember the incredible power of God that stands behind us and supports us when we feel weak and discouraged. The God who saved us is powerful enough, by the way, to keep us. He says, who saved us. God chose to save us by his own son. His son died for us. His son saved us. But isn't the God who saved us powerful enough to keep us when we're going through difficulties in our life? He's much more bigger and much more powerful than anything else we may face, any discouragement we may face. The next point is the God who saved us is powerful enough also to make us holy. He called us to a holy calling. You want to know the power of God? Look at your own life. How has God changed you? Remember how you used to be addicted to sin? Remember how you used to love sin? You were enslaved to sin? But then God reached into your life and God changed you? Now we're not completely free of sin. We still struggle with sin, but there's a whole different orientation inside of us. If God can change you, and he's that powerful to remake your heart, can't that same God be powerful enough to control people and circumstances in our life? He has so much power. The God who saved us didn't save us because of our works, but because of his purposes and grace. Not because of our works, he says, but because of his own purpose and grace. What a powerful God. What did you contribute to saving yourself this morning if you've trusted in Christ? The only thing you contributed is the sin from which you needed to be saved. He did it all. All we could do is receive it as a gift by faith. What an incredible, powerful God. Not only that, but when did he save us? The God who saved us chose us in eternity past, before we even existed, as it says here, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Think about this. Before the world was even created, God knew your name, he planned all of your days, and he had chosen to save you and put you together with his own son. That's power. That's the kind of power that God has. Why are we afraid about a little suffering for Jesus when we know the power of God that stands behind us, that supports us, and that controls our life? Let me flip over. Can't turn my pages. Lastly, the God who saved us did it all through Jesus, abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to us through the gospel. Now to him who's been 
manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. All of God's purposes, his plans to save us, all that he has done for us, all comes to fruition in one person, Jesus Christ, who died at one point in time to save us from our sin. All of God's goodness comes to us through Jesus. And here's what happened. Somebody at one time risked being rejected and risked being mocked to tell you or me about Jesus. Somebody risked for us. And what God did is he took that gospel message, he made it come alive, and he drew us in and his eternal purposes to save us were realized when somebody told us about Jesus. And God will do the exact same thing for someone else when we tell them about Jesus. Will everybody be drawn to Christ when we tell them about Jesus? No. Some people will reject us. Some people will mock us. Some people will insult us. Expect that. But other people will be born again and experience new life. So here's the question. How can I not speak about Jesus when all of the power and all of the purposes of God are unleashed through Him? How can I be quiet and just talk about Him at Sundays and at home? Let me read the, the verse I began with earlier. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers! who bring good news. This week, will you have beautiful feet? Will you be the messengers to reach people with Jesus? Not just people who already know him, but the people who need to meet him. Some will be drawn to him, some will reject him, and some will actually reject you. Just expect it. But that's the good way the gospel goes forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to reach people with Jesus, reach our community with Jesus. Here we are as a church, and in many ways, this worship center is not nearly full enough. There are ropes on pews and spacing us out, and this ring as hopefully some of the ropes get to go away. There's a chance for us to bring more people in. I ask that you would help us this week to be people with beautiful feet who bring good news, who speak about you in places and to people that need to know you and that need to meet you. And that Holy Spirit, you would quicken hearts. You would encourage people that they may want to know you and follow you and love you. And help us to have a right mindset, to be prepared that as we do this and we get bold for you in our community, 
that some people will reject us, some people will mock us, some people will try to insult us and hurt us. But as we go through that time, we are so blessed because it is in those discouraging seasons when the Holy Spirit rests on us in a special and more powerful way than ever before. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.